Part Six of Batwing by Sax Romer, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Batwing, Chapter Sixteen, Red Eve. Over the remainder of that afternoon, I will pass in silence. Indeed, looking backward now, I cannot recollect that it afforded one incident worthy of record. But because great things overshadow small, so it may be that whereas my recollections of quite trivial episodes are sharp enough up to a point, my memories from this point onward to the horrible and tragic happening which I have set myself to relate are hazy and indistinct. I was troubled by the continued absence of Val Beverly. I thought that she was avoiding me by design, and in Harley's gloomy reticence I could find no shadow of comfort. We wandered aimlessly about the grounds, Harley staring up in a vague fashion at the windows of Cray's Folly, and presently, when I stopped to inspect a very perfect rose-bush, he left me without a word, and I found myself alone. Later, as I sauntered toward the Tudor garden, where I had hoped to encounter Miss Beverley, I heard the clicking of billiard-balls, and there was Harley at the table, practicing fancy-shots. He glanced up at me as I paused by the open window stopped to relight his pipe, and then bent over the table again. "'Leave me alone, Knox,' he muttered. "'I am not fit for human society.' Understanding his moods as well as I did, I merely laughed and withdrew. I strolled around into the library and inspected scores of books without forming any definite impression of the contents of any of them. Manuel came in whilst I was there, and I was strongly tempted to send a message to Miss Beverley but common sense overcame the inclination. When at last my watch told me that the hour for dressing was arrived, I heaved a sigh of relief. I cannot say that I was bored. My ill-temper sprang from a deeper source than this. The mysterious disappearance of the inmates of Cray's folly, and a sort of brooding stillness which lay over the great house, had utterly oppressed me. As I passed along the terrace, I paused to admire the spectacle afforded by the setting sun. The horizon was on fire from north to south, and the countryside was stained with that mystic radiance which is sometimes called the blood of Apollo. Turning, I saw the disk of the moon coldly rising in the heavens. I thought of the silent birds and the hovering hawk, and I began my preparations for dinner mechanically, dressing as an automaton might dress. Paul Harley's personality was never more marked than in his evil moods. His power to fascinate was only equalled by his power to repel. Thus, although there was a light in his room and I could hear him moving about, I did not join him when I had finished dressing, but, lighting a cigarette, walked downstairs. The beauty of the night called to me, although, as I stepped out upon the terrace, I realized with a sort of shock that the gathering dusk held a menace so that I found myself questioning the shadows and doubting the rustle of every leaf. Something invisible, intangible, yet potent, brooded over Cray's folly. I began to think more kindly of the disappearance of Val Beverley during the afternoon. Doubtless she too had been touched by this spirit of unrest, and in solitude had sought to dispel it. So thinking, I walked on in the direction of the Tudor garden. The place was bathed in a sort of purple half-light, lending it a fairy air of unreality, 
as though banished sun and rising moon yet disputed for mastery over the earth. This idea set me thinking of Colin Camber, of Osiris, whom he had described as a black god, and of Isis, whose silver disk now held undisputed sovereignty of the evening sky. Resentment of the treatment which I had received at the guest-house still burned hotly within me, but the mystery of it all had taken the keen edge off my wrath, and I think a sort of melancholy was the keynote of my reflections as, descending the steps to the sunken garden, I saw Val Beverley, in a delicate blue gown, coming toward me. She was the spirit of my dreams, and the embodiment of my mood. When she lowered her eyes at my approach, I knew, by virtue of a sort of inspiration, that she had been avoiding me. "'Miss Beverley,' I said, "'I have been looking for you all the afternoon.' "'Have you? I have been in my room, writing letters.' I paced slowly along beside her. "'I wish you would be very frank with me,' I said. She glanced up swiftly, and as swiftly lowered her lashes again. "'Do you think I am not frank?' "'I do think so. I understand why.' Do you really understand? I think I do. Your woman's intuition has told you that there is something wrong. In what way? You are afraid of your thoughts. You can see that Madame de Stemmer and Colonel Menendez are deliberately concealing something from Paul Harley, and you don't know where your duty lies. Am I right?" She met my glance for a moment in a startled way, then— Yes, she said softly, you are quite right. How have you guessed?" "'I have tried very hard to understand you,' I replied, and so perhaps up to a point I have succeeded." "'Oh, Mr. Knox,' she suddenly laid her hand upon my arm, "'I am oppressed with such a dreadful foreboding, yet I don't know how to explain it to you. I understand. I too have felt it. You have?' She paused and looked at me eagerly. Then it is not just morbid imagination on my part. If only I knew what to do, what to believe. Really, I am bewildered. I have just left Madame de Stemmer. Yes, I said, for she had paused in evident doubt. Well, she has utterly broken down. Broken down? She came to my room and sobbed hysterically for nearly an hour this afternoon. But what was the cause of her grief? I simply cannot understand. Is it possible that Colonel Menendez is dangerously ill? It may be so, Mr. Knox. But in that event, why have they not sent for a physician? True, I murmured, and no one has been sent for. No one. Have you seen Colonel Menendez? Not since lunchtime. Have you ever known him to suffer in this way before? Never. It is utterly unaccountable. Certainly during the last few months he has given up writing practically altogether, and in other ways has changed his former habits. But I have never known him to exhibit traces of any real illness. Has any medical man attended him? Not that I know of. Oh, there is something uncanny about it all. Whatever should I do if you were not here?" She had spoken on impulse, and seeing her swift embarrassment, "'Miss Beverley,' I said, "'I am delighted to know that my company cheers you.' Truth to tell, my heart was beating rapidly, 
and, so selfish is the nature of man, I was more glad to learn that my company was acceptable to Val Beverly than I should have been to have had the riddle of Cray's folly laid bare before me. Those sweetly indiscreet words, however, had raised a momentary barrier between us, and we walked on silently to the house, and entered the brightly lighted hall. The silver peal of a Chinese tubular gong rang out just when we reached the veranda, and as Val Beverly and I walked in from the garden, Madame de Stemmer came wheeling through the doorway, closely followed by Paul Harley. In her the art of the toilet had amounted almost to genius, and she had so successfully concealed all traces of her recent grief that I wondered if this could have been real. "'My dear Mr. Knox,' she cried, I seem to be fated always to apologize for other people. The colonel is truly desolate, but he cannot join us for dinner. I have already explained to Mr. Arley." Harley inclined his head sympathetically, and assisted to arrange Madame in her place. "'The colonel requests us to smoke a cigar with him after dinner, Knox,' he said, glancing across to me. "'It would seem that troubles never come singly. Ah, madame shrugged her shoulders, which her low gown left daringly bare. They come in flocks, or not at all. But I suppose we should feel lonely in the world without a few little sorrows, eh, Mr. Arley? I loved her unquenchable spirit, and I have wondered often enough what I should have thought of her had I known the truth. France has bred some wonderful women, both good and bad, but none I think more wonderful than Marie de Stemmer. If such a thing were possible, we dined more extravagantly than on the previous night. Madame's wit was at its keenest. She was truly brilliant. Pedro, from the big buffet at the end of the room, supervised this feast of Lucullus, and except for odd moments of silence in which Madame seemed to be listening for some distant sound, there was nothing, I think, which could have told a casual observer that a black cloud rested upon the house. Once, interrupting a tete-a-tete -tete between Val Beverly and Paul Harley, "'Do not encourage her, Mr. Arley,' said Madame. "'She is a desperate flirt.' "'Oh, Madame!' cried Val Beverly, and blushed deeply. "'You know you are, my dear, and you are very wise. Flirt all your life, but never fall in love. It is fatal, don't you think, Mr. Knox?' turning to me in her rapid manner. I looked into her still eyes, which concealed so much. "'Say, rather, that it is fate,' I murmured. "'Yes, that is more pretty, but not so true. If I could live my life again, Mr. Knox,' he said, for she sometimes used the French and sometimes the English mode of address, "'I should build a stone wall around my heart. It could peep over, but no one could ever reach it.' Oddly enough, then, as it seems to me now, the spirit of unrest seemed almost to depart for a while, and in the company of the vivacious Frenchwoman time passed very quickly, up to the moment when Harley and I walked slowly upstairs to join the Colonel. During the latter part of dinner an idea had presented itself to me which I was anxious to mention to Harley, and— "'Harley,' I said, "'an explanation of the Colonel's absence has occurred to me.' "'Really?' he replied, possibly the same one that has occurred to me. What is that? Paul Harley paused on the stairs, turning to me. You are thinking that he has taken cover from the danger which he believes particularly to threaten him to-night? Exactly. 
You may be right, he murmured, proceeding upstairs. He led the way to a little smoke-room, which hitherto I had never visited, and in response to his knock, "'Come in!' cried the high voice of Colonel Menendez. We entered to find ourselves in a small and very cosy room. There was a handsome oak bureau against one wall, which was littered with papers of various kinds, and there was also a large bookcase occupied almost exclusively by French novels. It occurred to me that the Colonel spent a greater part of his time in this little snuggery than in the more formal study below. In the moment of our arrival he was stretched upon a settee near which stood a little table, and on this table I observed the remains of what appeared to me to have been a fairly substantial repast. For some reason, which I did not pause to analyze at the moment, I noted with disfavor the presence of a bowl of roses upon the silver tray. Colonel Menendez was smoking a cigarette, and Manuel was in the act of removing the tray. "'Gentlemen,' said the Colonel, "'I have no words in which to express my sorrow. Manuel, pull up those armchairs. Help yourselves to port, Mr. Hardy, and fill Mr. Knox's glass. I can recommend the cigars in the long box.' As we seated ourselves, "'I am extremely sorry to find you indisposed, sir,' said Harley. He was watching the dark face keenly, and probably thinking, as I was thinking, that it exhibited no trace of illness. Colonel Menendez waved his cigarette gracefully, settling himself amid the cushions. "'An old trouble, Mr. Harley,' he replied lightly, "'a legacy from ancestors who drank too deep of the wine of life.' "'You are surely taking medical advice?' Colonel Menendez shrugged slightly. There is no doctor in England who would understand the case," he replied. Besides, there is nothing for it but rest and avoidance of excitement. In that event, Colonel, said Harley, we will not disturb you for long. Indeed, I should not have consented to disturb you at all, if I had not thought you might have some request to make upon this important night. Ah! Colonel Menendez shot a swift glance in his direction. You have remembered about to-night. Naturally. Your interest comforts me very greatly, gentlemen, and I am only sorry that my uncertain health has made me so poor a host. Nothing has occurred since your arrival to help you, I am aware. Not that I am anxious for any new activity on the part of my enemies. But almost anything which should end this deathly suspense would be welcome." He spoke the final words with a peculiar intonation. I saw Harley watching him closely. "'However,' he continued, "'everything is in the hands of fate, and if your visit should prove futile, I can only apologize for having interrupted your original plans. Respecting to-night,' he shrugged, "'what can I say?' "'Nothing has occurred,' asked Harley slowly. "'Nothing fresh, I mean, to indicate that the danger which you apprehend may really culminate to-night.' Nothing fresh, Mr. Harley, unless you yourself have observed anything." "'Ah,' murmured Paul Harley, "'let us hope that the threat will never be fulfilled.' Colonel Menendez inclined his head gravely. "'Let us hope so,' he said. On the whole he was curiously subdued. He was most solicitous for our comfort, and his exquisite courtesy had never been more marked. I often think of him now his big but graceful figure reclining upon the settee, 
whilst he skillfully rolled his eternal cigarettes and chatted in that peculiar, light voice. Before the memory of Colonel Don Juan Sarmiento Menendez I sometimes stand appalled. If his Maker had but endowed him with other qualities of mind and heart equal to his magnificent courage, then truly he had been a great man. Chapter 17 Night of the Full Moon I stood at Harley's open window, looking down in the Tudor garden. The moon, like a silver mirror, hung in a cloudless sky. Over an hour had elapsed since I had heard Pedro making his nightly rounds. Nothing whatever of an unusual nature had occurred, and although Harley and I had listened for any sound of nocturnal footsteps, our vigilance had passed unrewarded. Harley, unrolling the Chinese ladder, had set out upon a secret tour of the grounds, warning me that it must be a long business, since the brilliance of the moonlight rendered it necessary that he should make a wide detour, in order to avoid possible observation from the windows. I had wished to join him, but I counted most important that one of us should remain in the house, he had replied. As a result, there was I at the open window, questioning the shadows to right and left of me, and every moment expecting to see Harley reappear. I wondered what discoveries he would make. It would not have surprised me to learn that there were lights in many windows of Cray's folly tonight. Although, when we had rejoined the ladies for half an hour after leaving Colonel Menendez's room, there had been no overt reference to the menace overhanging the house, yet, as we separated for the night, I had detected again in Val Beverly's eyes that look of repressed fear. Indeed, she was palpably disinclined to retire, but was carried off by the masterful madame, who declared that she looked tired. I wondered now, as I gazed down into the moon-bathed gardens, if Harley and I were the only wakeful members of the household at that hour. I should have been prepared to wager that there were others. I thought of the strange footsteps which so often passed Miss Beverley's room, and I discovered this thought to be an uncomfortable one. Normally I was skeptical enough, but on this night of the full moon as I stood there at the window, the horrors which Colonel Menendez had related to us grew very real in my eyes, and I thought that the mysteries of voodoo might conceal strange and ghastly truths. The scientific employment of darkness against light. Colonel Camber's words leapt unbidden to my mind, and such is the magic of moonlight. They became invested with a new and deeper significance. Strange that theories which one rejects whilst the sun is shining should assume a spectral shape in the light of the moon. Such were my musings, when suddenly I heard a faint sound as of footsteps crunching upon gravel. I leaned farther out of the window, listening intently. I could not believe that Harley would be guilty of such an indiscretion as this, yet who else could be walking upon the path below? As I watched, craning from the window, a tall figure appeared, and slowly crossing the gravel path, descended the moss-grown steps to the Tudor garden. It was Colonel Menendez. He was bareheaded, but fully dressed, as I had seen him in the smoking-room and not yet grasping the portent of his appearance at that hour, but merely wondering why he had not yet retired, I continued to watch him, 
As I did so, something in his gait, something unnatural in his movements, caught hold of my mind with a sudden great conviction. He had reached the path which had led to the sundial, and with short, queer, ataxic steps was proceeding in its direction, a striking figure in the brilliant moonlight, which touched his gray hair with a silvery sheen. His unnatural, automatic movements told their own story. He was walking in his sleep. Could it be in obedience to the call of Macumbo? My throat grew dry, and I knew not how to act. Unwillingly, it seemed, with ever-halting steps, the figure moved onward. I could see that his fists were tightly clenched, and that he held his head rigidly upright. All horrors, real and imaginary, which I had ever experienced, culminated in that moment, when I saw this man of inflexible character, I could have sworn of indomitable will, moving like a puppet under the influence of some unnameable force. He was almost come to the sundial when I determined to cry out. Then, remembering the shock experienced by a suddenly awakened somnambulist, and remembering that the Chinese ladder hung from the window at my feet, I changed my mind. Checking the cry upon my lips, I got astride of the window-ledge and began to grope for the bamboo rungs beneath me. I had found the first of these, and turning, had begun to descend, when— "'Knox! Knox!' came softly from the opening in the box-hedge. "'What the devil are you about?' It was Paul Harley, returned from his tour of the building. "'Harley!' I whispered, descending. "'Quick! The Colonel has just gone into the Tudor garden!' "'What?' There was a note of absolute horror in the exclamation. "'You should have stopped him, Knox! You should have stopped him!' cried Harley, and with that he ran off in the same direction. Disentangling my foot from the rungs of the ladder which lay upon the ground, I was about to follow when it happened, that strange and ghastly thing toward which, secretly, darkly, events had been tending. The crack of a rifle sounded sharply in the stillness, echoing and re-echoing from wing to wing of Cray's folly, and then, more dimly, up the wooded slopes beyond. Somewhere ahead of me I heard Harley cry out, "'My God! I am too late! They have got him!' Then, hotfoot, I was making for the entrance to the garden. Just as I came to it and raced down the steps I heard another sound the memory of which haunts me to this day. Where it came from I had no idea. Perhaps I was too confused to judge accurately. It might have come from the house, or from the slopes beyond the house but it was a sort of shrill, choking laugh, and it set the ultimate touch of horror upon a scene macabre, which, even as I write of it, seems unreal to me. I ran up the path to where Harley was kneeling beside the sundial. Analysis of my emotions at this moment were futile. I can only say that I had come to a state of stupefaction. Face downward on the grass, arms outstretched and fists clenched, lay Colonel Menendez. I think I saw him move convulsively, but as I gained his side Harley looked up at me, and beneath the tan which he never lost his face had grown pale. He spoke through clenched teeth. "'Merciful God!' he said. "'He is shot through the head!' One glance I gave at the ghastly wound in the base of the Colonel's skull, and then swayed backward in a sort of nausea. To see a man die in the heat of battle, a man one has known and called friend, is strange and terrible. 
Here, in this moon-bathed Tudor garden, it was a horror almost beyond my powers to endure. Paul Harley, without touching the prone figure, stood up. Indeed, no examination of the victim was necessary. A rifle-bullet had pierced his brain, and he lay there dead, with his head toward the hills. I clutched at Harley's shoulder, but he stood rigidly, staring up the slope past the angle of the tower, to where a gable of the guest-house jutted out from the trees. "'Did you hear that cry?' I whispered, immediately after the shot. I heard it. A moment longer he stood fixedly watching, and then— "'Not a wisp of smoke,' he said. "'You note the direction in which he was facing when he fell?' He spoke in a stern and unnatural voice. "'I do. He must have turned half right when he came to the sundial. Where were you when the shot was fired?' "'Running in this direction. You saw no flash?' "'None.' "'Neither did I,' groaned Harley. Neither did I. And short of throwing a cordon round the hills, what can be done? How can I move?" He had somewhat relaxed, but now, as I continued to clutch his arm, I felt the muscles grow rigid again. "'Look, Knox,' he whispered. "'Look!' I followed the direction of his fixed stare, and through the trees on the hillside a dim light shone out. Someone had lighted a lamp in the guest-house. A faint, sibilant sound drew my glance upward, and there overhead a bat circled, circled, dipped, and flew off toward the distant woods. So still was the night that I could distinguish the babble of the little stream which ran down into the lake. Then suddenly came a loud flapping of wings. The swans had been awakened by the sound of the shot. Others had been awakened too, for now distant voices became audible and then a muffled scream from somewhere within Cray's folly. "'Back to the house, Knox,' said Harley hoarsely. "'For God's sake, keep the women away. Get Pedro, and send Manuel for the nearest doctor. It's useless, but usual. Let no one deface his footprints. My worst anticipations have come true. The local police must be informed.' Throughout the time that he spoke, he continued to search the moon-bathed landscape with feverish eagerness, but except for a faint movement of birds in the trees, for they, like the swans on the lake, had been alarmed by the shot, nothing stirred. "'It came from the hillside,' he muttered. "'Off you go, Knox.' And even as I started on my unpleasant errand he had set out running toward the gate in the southern corner of the garden. For my part I scrambled unceremoniously up the bank and emerged where the yew stood sentinel beside the path. I ran through the gap in the box-hedge just as the main doors were thrown open by Pedro. He started back as he saw me. "'Pedro! Pedro!' I cried. "'Have the ladies been awakened?' "'Yes, yes, there is a terrible trouble, sir. What has happened? What has happened?' "'A tragedy,' I said shortly. "'Pull yourself together. Where is Madame de Stemmer?' Pedro uttered some exclamation in Spanish and stood, pale-faced, swaying before me, a disheveled figure in a dressing-gown. And now in the background Mrs. Fisher appeared. One frightened glance she cast in my direction, and would have hurried across the hall, but I intercepted her. "'Where are you going, Mrs. Fisher?' I demanded. "'What has happened here?' "'To Madame! To Madame!' she sobbed, pointing toward the corridor which communicated with Madame de Stemmer's bedchamber. 
I heard a frightened cry proceeding from that direction, and recognized the voice of Nita, the girl who acted as Madame's maid. Then I heard Val Beverly. "'Go and fetch Mrs. Fisher, Nita, at once, and try to behave yourself. I have trouble enough.' I entered the corridor and pulled up short. Val Beverly, fully dressed, was kneeling beside Madame de Stammer, who wore a kimono over her nightrobe and who lay huddled on the floor immediately outside the door of her room. "'Oh, Mr. Knox!' cried the girl, pitifully, and raised frightened eyes to me. "'For God's sake, what has happened?' Nita, the Spanish girl, who was sobbing hysterically, ran along to join Mrs. Fisher. "'I will tell you in a moment,' I said, quietly, rendered cool, as one always is, by the need of others. "'But first tell me.' How did Madame de Stemmer get here? I don't know, I don't know. I was startled by the shot. It has awakened everybody. And just as I opened my door to listen, I heard Madame cry out in the hall below. I ran down, turned on the light, and found her lying here. She too had been awakened, I suppose, and was endeavoring to drag herself from her room when her strength failed her and she swooned. She is too heavy for me to lift," added the girl, pathetically and Pedro is out of his senses, and Nita, who was the first of the three servants to come, is simply hysterical, as you can see." I nodded reassuringly, and stooping, lifted the swooning woman. She was much heavier than I should have supposed, but, Val Beverly leading the way, I carried her into her apartment and placed her upon the bed. "'I will leave her to you,' I said. "'You have courage, so I will tell you what has happened.' Yes, tell me, oh, tell me!" She laid her hands upon my shoulders appealingly, and looked up into my eyes in a way that made me long to take her in my arms and comfort her, an insane longing which I only crushed with difficulty. "'Someone has shot Colonel Menendez,' I said in a low voice, for Mrs. Fisher had just entered. "'You mean?' I nodded. "'Oh!' Val Beverly opened and closed her eyes clutching at me dizzily for a moment, then— "'I think,' she whispered, "'she must have known, and that was why she swooned. Oh, my God, how horrible!' I made her sit down in an armchair and watched her anxiously, but although every speck of color had faded from her cheeks, she was splendidly courageous, and almost immediately she smiled up at me, very wanly but confidently. "'I will look after her,' she said. Mr. Harley will need your assistance." When I returned to the hall I found it already filled with a number of servants incongruously attired. Carter the chauffeur, who lived at the lodge, was just coming in at the door, and— "'Carter,' I said, "'get a car out quickly, and bring the nearest doctor. If there is another man who can drive, send him for the police. Your master has been shot.'" Chapter 18 Inspector Aylesbury of Market Hilton. "'Now, gentlemen,' said Inspector Aylesbury, "'I will take evidence.' Dawn was creeping grayly over the hills, and the view from the library windows resembled a study by Bastien Lepage. The lamps burned yellowly, and the exotic appointments of the library viewed in that cold light for some reason reminded me of a stage set seen in daylight. The Velasquez portrait mentally translated me to the billiard-room, where something lay upon the settee with a white sheet drawn over it. 
and I wondered if my own face looked as wan and comfortless as did the faces of my companions, that is, of two of them, for I must accept Inspector Aylesbury. Squarely before the oaken mantel he stood, a large pompous man, but in this hour I could find no humour in Paul Harley's description of him as resembling a walrus. He had a large auburn moustache tinged with grey, and prominent brown eyes, but the lower part of his face, which terminated in a big double chin, was ill-balanced by his small forehead. He was bulkily built, and I had conceived an unreasonable distaste for his puffy hands. His official air and oratorical manner were provoking. Harley sat in the chair which had been occupied during our last interview with Colonel Menendez in the library, and I had realized, a realization which had made me uncomfortable, that I was seated upon the couch on which the Colonel had reclined. Only one other was present, Dr. Rolston of Midhatton, a slight, fair man, with a brisk military manner, acquired perhaps during six years of war service. He was standing beside me, smoking a cigarette. "'I have taken all the necessary particulars concerning the position of the body,' continued the inspector. "'The nature of the wound, contents of pockets, etc., and now turn to you, Mr. Harley, as the first person to discover the murdered man.' Paul Harley lay back in the armchair, watching the speaker. "'Before we come to what happened here tonight, I should like to be quite clear about your position in the matter, Mr. Harley. Now,' Inspector Aylesbury raised one finger in forensic manner, "'now you visited me yesterday afternoon, Mr. Harley, and asked for certain information regarding the neighborhood.' "'I did,' said Harley shortly. "'The questions which you asked me were—' continued the inspector, slowly and impressively, did I know of any negro or colored people living in or about Midhatton, and could I give you a list of the residents within a two-mile radius of Cray's Folly? I gave you the information which you required, and now it is your turn to give me some. Why did you ask those questions?" "'For this reason,' was the reply. I had been requested by Colonel Menendez to visit Cray's Folly, accompanied by my friend Mr. Knox, in order that I might investigate certain occurrences which had taken place here." "'Oh,' said the inspector, raising his eyebrows, "'I see. You were here to make investigations?' "'Yes.' "'And these occurrences, will you tell me what they were?' "'Simple enough in themselves,' replied Harley. Someone broke into the house one night. Broke into the house? Undoubtedly. But this was never reported to us. Possibly not, but someone broke in nevertheless. Secondly, Colonel Menendez had detected someone lurking about the lawns, and thirdly, the wing of a bat was nailed to the main door. Inspector Aylesbury lowered his eyebrows and concentrated a frowning glance upon the speaker. Of course, sir he said, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but you are not by any chance trying to be funny at a time like this." "'My sense of humor has failed me entirely,' replied Harley. "'I am merely stating bald facts in reply to your questions.' "'Oh, I see,' the inspector cleared his throat. "'Someone broke into Cray's folly, then, a fact which has not been reported to me.' A suspicious loiterer was seen in the grounds, again not reported, 
and someone played a silly practical joke by nailing the wing of a bat, you say, to the door. Might I ask, Mr. Harley, why you mention this matter? The other things are serious, but why you should mention the trick of some mischievous boy at a time like this, I can't imagine." No, said Harley wearily. It does sound absurd, Inspector. I quite appreciate the fact, but you see, Colonel Menendez regarded it as the most significant episode of them all. What? The bat-wing nailed on the door? The bat-wing, decidedly. He believed it to be the token of a negro secret society which had determined upon his death, hence my inquiries regarding colored men in the neighborhood. Do you understand, Inspector?" Inspector Aylesbury took a large handkerchief from his pocket and blew his nose. Replacing the handkerchief, he cleared his throat, and— "'Am I to understand,' he inquired, "'that the late Colonel Menendez had expected to be attacked?' "'You may understand that,' replied Harley. "'It explains my presence in the house.' "'Oh,' said the inspector, "'I see. It looks as though he might have done better if he had applied to me.' Paul Harley glanced across in my direction and smiled grimly. "'As I had predicted, Knox,' he murmured, "'my Waterloo.' "'What's that you say about Waterloo, Mr. Harley?' demanded the inspector. "'Nothing germane to the case,' replied Harley. "'It was a reference to a battle, not to a railway station.' Inspector Aylesbury stared at him dully. "'You quite understand that you are giving evidence,' he said. "'It were impossible not to appreciate the fact.' "'Very well, then. The late Colonel Menendez thought he was in danger from negroes. Why did he think that?' "'He was a retired West Indian planter,' replied Harley patiently, "'and he was under the impression that he had offended a powerful native society, and for that many years their vengeance had pursued him. Attempts to assassinate him had already taken place in Cuba and in the United States.' What sort of attempts? He was shot at several times, and once in Washington was attacked by a man with a knife. He maintained in my presence, and in the presence of my friend Mr. Knox here, that these various attempts were due to members of a sect or religion known as Voodoo. Voodoo? Voodoo, Inspector, also known as Obia a cult which has spread from the west coast of Africa throughout the West Indies and to parts of the United States. The bat-wing is said to be a sign used by these people." Inspector Aylesbury scratched his chin. "'Now let me get this thing clear,' said he. Colonel Menendez believed that people called voodoos wanted to kill him? Before we go any farther, why?' Twenty years ago in the West Indies he had shot an important member of this sect. Twenty years ago? According to a statement which was made to me, yes. I see. Then for twenty years these voodoos have been trying to kill him. Then he comes and settles here in Surrey, and someone nails a bat-wing to his door. Did you see this bat-wing? I did. I have it upstairs in my bag if you would care to examine it. Oh said the inspector, I see. And thinking he had been followed to England, he came to you to see if you could save him?" Paul Harley nodded grimly. "'Why did he go to you in preference to the local police, 
the proper authorities, demanded the inspector. He was advised to do so by the Spanish ambassador, or so he informed me. Is that so? Well, I suppose it had to be. Coming from foreign parts. I expect he didn't know what our police are for. He cleared his throat. Very well. I understand now what you are doing here, Mr. Harley. The next thing is, what were you doing tonight, as I see that both you and Mr. Knox are still in evening dress? We were keeping watch, I replied. Inspector Aylesbury turned to me ponderously, raising a fat hand. One moment, Mr. Knox, one moment, he protested. The evidence of one witness at a time. We were keeping watch, said Harley, deliberately echoing my words. Why? More or less we were here for that purpose. You see, on the night of the full moon, according to Colonel Menendez, Obia people become particularly active. Why on the night of the full moon? This I cannot tell you. Oh, I see. You were keeping watch. Where were you keeping watch? In my room. In which part of the house is your room? Northeast. It overlooks the Tudor Garden. At what time did you retire? About half-past ten. Did you leave the Colonel well? No, he had been unwell all day. He had remained in his room. Had he asked you to sit up? Not at all. Our vigil was quite voluntary. Very well, then. You were in your room when the shot was fired? On the contrary, I was on the path in front of the house. Oh, I see. The front door was open, then. Not at all. Pedro had locked up for the night. And locked you out? No, I descended from my window by means of a ladder which I had brought with me for the purpose. With a ladder? That's rather extraordinary, Mr. Harley. It is extraordinary. I have strange habits. Inspector Aylesbury cleared his throat again and looked frowningly across at my friend. What part of the grounds were you in when the shot was fired? he demanded. Halfway along the north side. What were you doing? I was running. Running? You see, Inspector, I regarded it as my duty to patrol the grounds of the house at nightfall, since, for all I knew to the contrary, some of the servants might be responsible for the attempts of which the Colonel complained. I had descended from the window of my room, had passed entirely around the house east to west, and had returned to my starting-point when Mr. Knox, who was looking out of the window, observed Colonel Menendez entering the Tudor garden. Oh! Colonel Menendez was not visible to you! Not from my position below, but being informed by my friend, who was hurriedly descending the ladder, that the Colonel had entered the garden, I set off running to intercept him. Why? He had acquired a habit of walking in his sleep, and I presumed that he was doing so on this occasion. Oh, I see. So, being told by the gentleman at the window that Colonel Menendez was in the garden, you started to run toward him. While you were running, you heard a shot? I did. Where did you think it came from? Nothing is more difficult to judge, Inspector, especially when one is near to a large building surrounded by trees. Nevertheless, said the inspector, again raising his finger and frowning at Harley, 
you cannot tell me that you formed no impression on the point? For instance, was it near or a long way off? It was fairly near. Ten yards, twenty yards, a hundred yards, a mile? Within a hundred yards, I cannot be more exact. Within a hundred yards, and you have no idea from which direction the shot was fired? From the sound I could form none. Oh, I see. And what did you do? I ran on and down into the sunken garden. I saw Colonel Menendez lying upon his face near the sundial. He was moving convulsively. Running up to him, I saw that he had been shot through the head. What steps did you take? My friend Mr. Knox had joined me, and I sent him for assistance. But what steps did you take to apprehend the murderer? Paul Harley looked at him quietly. What steps should you have taken? he asked. Inspector Aylesbury cleared his throat again, and— "'I don't think I should have let my man slip through my fingers like that,' he replied. "'Why, by now he may be out of the county.' "'Your theory is quite feasible,' said Harley, tonelessly. "'You were actually on the spot when the shot was fired. You admit that it was fired within a hundred yards, yet you did nothing to apprehend the murderer.' "'No,' replied Harley. I was ridiculously inactive. You see, I am a mere amateur, Inspector. For my future guidance, I should be glad to know what the correct procedure would have been." Inspector Aylesbury blew his nose. "'I know my job,' he said. If I had been called in, there might have been a different tale to tell. But he was a foreigner, and he paid for his ignorance, poor fellow. Paul Harley took out his pipe and began to load it in a deliberate and lazy manner. Inspector Aylesbury turned his prominent eyes in my direction. End of chapter 18